Let's once more go before the Father in prayer. Lord God, again we come before you as we open your word, that which the Holy Spirit inspired. May it also, O Lord, illuminate to us this morning your truth. May we, O God, have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that would apply, that we may glorify you with our lives and all that we say and do. And to the Lord we give our obedience. Amen. So we are still in bearing the marks of uh, the gospel upon ourselves that we who are Christ followers uh, bear upon us those things that resemble Jesus as we walk through life. And we hearken back to Paul at the end of the book of Galatians who said not to give him any trouble because he bears upon his body the marks of Christ. And in the same way, we in this day and in this age may not be uh, beaten physically for our faith or imprisoned for our faith. We certainly face trials and tribulations that give us heart scars and stripes upon our, our souls and upon our minds that give us the marks of those who follow Jesus. And as we seek to live in a culture that's so counter to the way that Jesus has called us to live as his disciples, it's inevitable that we would feel discomfort and pain and sometimes rejection from this world. And so we should not be surprised when we bear these marks upon our, our lives that make us, in the end, look like Jesus, as we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. Um, today, we'll be looking at the mark of obedience, that we are a people who obey those things of Jesus. In this particular case, over the last several weeks, we've been exhorted by the Holy Spirit through the writings of Paul in this Philippian church to be obedient to the idea of being unified one to another. And that we are uh, called and commanded by the Holy Spirit to show this type of obedience through humility uh, in the way that we um, defer and have deference one to another. And so this morning we want to talk and open up this bit of obedience even further in these 12 through 18 verses of the second chapter. It's important for us to realize that obedience is essential to church unity. That without obedience to Christ, without submission to Jesus first, there cannot be church unity. Paul in the letter to the Ephesian church says, out of submission to Christ, we are to submit one to another. That you and I must understand that our submitting to one another and having unity with one another is not something that we manufacture on our own, but it's a response to what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be. It's not an optional choice that we would make and saying, I think I'll choose today to be in unity or I think I'll choose today to submit. It is a character trait of those who follow Jesus that we are seeking humility and serving one another. And in that serving, we submit to one another. So obedience to Christ is essential to to church unity. One principle I want to give you this morning um, that maybe you can consider throughout the week is this, that obedience is the fruit of humility. Obedience is the fruit of humility. 
I find in my own life when I'm struggling with my pride, when I'm struggling with self-interest and self-promotion, humility is far from me. It's not a character trait that's just shining out of my life when I have those attitudes in my heart. But when I have the attitude in my heart of the mercy that's been shown to me is the mercy that I'm to express to others, I find the quality that comes with that is humility. And it's out of that humility I find obedience is much more delightful than dutiful. And so we want to just ponder that this week, that obedience is the fruit of humility. And so it's a big red flag for us of when we're not feeling humble, when we're not feeling that sense of blessing, that sense of thankfulness, that sense of gratitude that Jesus has given himself for me and I'm not expressing that to other people, but instead I find myself more jaded, more cynical, more judgmental, more angry, then I can find I'm probably not being obedient to that which Christ has called me to do because my pride is flaring up much larger than what humility would have it to do. Humility, I'm sorry, obedience is also a fruit of love. Obedience also is the fruit of love. And obedience without humility and love is just Phariseeism. Obedience without love and humility is nothing more than Phariseeism. It's what Israel and the Pharisees of Israel missed all along in their relationship to God. Obedience for them was duty. It wasn't the response of delight of being in a loving relationship with Yahweh. And for many of us, we struggle with the same thing. We look at obedience to God as something that we must do to bring God's pleasure to ourselves. And therefore, it's a duty instead of realizing we have God's pleasure and therefore we want to express our love and obedience to God. These scriptures will open that up in just a minute. But I want to tell you, growing up, when I was a younger boy, I I grew up in a home where it It wasn't unusual that if you were in direct disobedience that there might be a spanking involved. Now, if you're you're too young to know what the word spanking means, it's spelled with an S, and normally it, it has to do with flesh being applied to flesh, either on the right or left cheek of your anterior end of your body, Um, and it hurts. But it, it is a corrective measure that parents used to take to get you to quit disobeying. In my house, I only got a spanking for two reasons. One was for either lying or direct disobedience was the other. And it was very clear. I mean, the, the lines in my home were clear that if you lied, you got a spanking. If you were directly disobedient, you got a spanking. Everything else was, you know, up for like restriction or, or being confined to the yard for a week or something like that. So you had like minor infractions and then the ones I was all too familiar with, the major infractions. Um, And that's how it was in the beginning. But as, as I got older and I began to understand what love meant, I want you to know something changed in me. And it became part of who I was to obey my father and my mother. And it wasn't out of fear of corporal punishment any longer. It wasn't from fear that somehow 
I wouldn't I would lose their love. But it came from a sense of joy because I knew that they loved me and I loved them that I did not want to bring displeasure to them. I didn't want them to see me behave out of the character of who they had taught me to be. I responded in obedience to my parents for the most part because I wanted them to know how much I loved them. You and I must understand our response to God is a response of love and delight, not duty that only leads to Phariseeism. You see, when love is taken out of obedience, it's like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. But when love is why we return and we repent and we obey, it's more like the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son. So it's important that we understand that our obedience, number one this morning, is a responsiveness. Our first point this morning, that it's a responsiveness, and it's an intentional working out of awe, showing the life of Christ from us. Look with me, if you will, at verse 12 of the second chapter. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now so... Not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Some important things to note there. One is Paul refers to the Philippian church as his beloved. Notice the connection again between love and obedience. Paul has a relationship of intimacy with his church. A relationship of love. And it's out of that love that he finds that he submits to them and they to him. And obedience is the fruit of that submission and that humility one to another. And it's not that Paul says, out of fear of who I am as an apostle, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to get you. I've got a hammer behind my back and I'm coming down the road. I'm on my way to Philippi. And if you don't obey me, I'm going to stomp you down further. And that's not the language we have here at all, but we have the language of love that says, look, therefore, my beloved, therefore, my beloved. And in that, we hear the heart of God to you and I this morning as he speaks to East Glenville and the people of East Glenville. Therefore, my beloved. And it begs you and I the question, well, what's the therefore? What are you talking about? Well, the therefore comes right out of verse 127 that we studied just a few weeks ago. Let your life, the manner of your life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes through the explanation of what that looks like in terms of humility, in terms of showing comfort, showing uh, blessing to one another, not doing things out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You should not only look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind above yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who through the form of God, and he goes through this litany of how Christ humbled himself, even to death on a cross. In light of all that, he says, therefore, my beloved. And in the same way, he says to you and I this morning, the Holy Spirit speaks to you and I this morning. 
Therefore, my beloved, respond in obedience because I love you. And you love me. Obey so now, not only as in my presence, but how much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. An often frightening verse that doesn't need to be, or confusing verse that really doesn't need to be. Paul here is not telling the Philippian church, do work for your salvation. No, he's saying much more, work out that which you already have. It's a possessiveness in the original language that the Holy Spirit is using here through Paul that says, work out your salvation, the salvation that you already have with fear and trembling. And with fear and trembling, if you read enough of Paul's letters, you realize what fear and trembling is really saying is with humility, understand the grace that is yours. Understand the mercy that has been shown to you. And in light of what God has given you, work that out in humility. There's no fear for you that if you don't do everything perfect, that God's going to rip his love out from underneath you. But it's more of an encouragement that says, because God will never take your salvation away, work it out in humility. It should create in you and I a sense of awe. That we are people who walk through this world in amazement and astonishment. Amazed, one, that we're even alive. That what a grace and a mercy life is. And then astonished that in all the ways that we botch it up, in all the ways that we fail, in all the ways that we fall short, God still gives us his love, mercy, and our salvation. That you and I should be people that are astonished by that and in awe of a living God who breathed in us the breath of life and to give us a renewal of spirit. How often, maybe like me, you take that for granted. One, that God even gave you a life to live. And two, that he gave you eternal life to live with him. You see, when that becomes our rule, when that becomes our love affair with God in gratefulness, obedience is the fruit of that loving response. We don't obey God because we're afraid he'll squash us. We obey God because we want to honor him with our love. It has nothing to do with how well you do things or not do things. It has to do in this case with where your heart and my heart is as we work out our salvation. Obedience is our responsiveness to the love of God towards us. Why? Because it is God, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. You see, once again, Paul is saying that we are responding only to that which God is doing within us. 
leads us to our second point this morning, that not only is God in our responsiveness, but obedience is in the struggle. It's the battle of countercultural living, the battle of living opposite of the world. By the world's structure and by the world's themes, those who dies with the most toys win. No matter what it takes to get to the top, the means justifies the end. No matter who we have to harm or hurt to get our own way, no one else is going to look out for us. Therefore, we must look out for ourselves. The world would have us self-promote, self-realization, self-love, self, self, self. And you can hyphen each one and fill in the blank. It is the way the world would have us live. It is a way and a path that leads to death. And it is God who calls you and I to live in the struggle of counter to that culture. To live in a way that is so different. To understand that it is God who says, be humble. Serve one another. Think of others better than yourself. Forgive others as you would receive forgiveness. Help. Don't hurt. Encourage. Don't destroy. Lift up. Don't tear down. And if you struggle with anything like I do in your head, when you hear those things, they go, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And you remember when I first came, I gave you a sort of an acrostic for but, behold the underlying truth. Yeah, Lord, but... I, yeah, Lord, but I, yeah, Lord, but I. You see what's at the end of each one of those times that we do that in our own minds is self. You know, Lord, it may not work out the way I want it to work out. Lord, they may not do what I want them to do. Lord, we may not get the return that I think we should get. And the reverse of that is where we are to be. Lord, I trust that you're at work and faithful to your doings. Lord, I submit to your plan. Lord, I will love my enemies. When I see someone hurt, I will bless them and heal them. When I see someone hungry, I will bring them food. When I see someone in need, I will try to meet that need. I will pray for my enemies. And I will bless those who curse me. You see how countercultural that is to the world in which you and I live today? And don't you see the number one thing that that will take is obedience. If you and I are determined to live as followers of Christ, it will take a true commitment to obedience. 
And we will wear the marks of obedience on our lives. It will be painful. And it will hurt. And sometimes it will be uncomfortable. But take heart, Jesus says. In this world you will have trouble. But fear not. I've overcome this world. Living as a Christian within the culture is supposed to be difficult. I think for two reasons. One is it requires faith to live in a difficult place. I used to, in my heart, complain a lot to God about all the opportunities of faith that he would put in my life. Maybe you have too. But then I read that verse in Hebrews, you remember, that says it's impossible to please God without faith. And then all of a sudden, all those opportunities in my life for faith became a blessing. Because I realized what God was doing was putting me in the position to be obedient to experience his love for me. And the things that were hard, those places that were a stretch, those places where I knew I'd get pushback, those places where I knew it would be hurtful, it gave me the strength to obey knowing that it was God loving me, putting me in that position that I might have the opportunity to express faith. And in the expression of that faith, there's no greater way for you and I to tell God we love him than to trust him. There's no better expression of love that the Christ follower can give Yahweh than trust. There's no act you're going to do. There's no amount of money you're going to give. There's no things that's going to happen in your life that will ever express your love for your Father in heaven more than your trust for what he's doing in your life. And because of that trust... We struggle in a world that finds God as their enemy. And as Paul would call us beloved, I would say the same. It's not going to get easier for us. You and I have to understand we live in a culture that is destined, desirous, purposely committed to hell. It seeks to worship that which is dying and perishing. And you and I live in the midst of that, going in an antithetical direction towards life and that which is eternal. And because of that, we have friction where we live. Paul goes on to say, that you may be do these things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul's taking words right out of Deuteronomy and applying them to the Philippian church here. In the same way in the Old Testament that God's people were living in this generation of crooked nations that were sacrificing their children and seeking life and death 
and worshiping all sorts of false gods, false ideologies, and the power were in the most powerful who had the biggest sling to throw a rock with. That's where trust was. And God's people were put as pilgrims and strangers in the midst of that as a light to those nations. You see what Paul is saying is to the Philippian church, it's no different for them in their culture. And he says the same thing to you and I in this day. It's no different for you and I that we are to live as children of light within this crooked generation. Well, how do we do that? He says we do that without grumbling or disputing. You remember the children of Israel, right? The ones that did not enter into the promised land. Do you remember why? Because they grumbled. They complained. And the Lord said, you're not coming in. This isn't a self-serving, gee, gosh, we shouldn't grumble and complain because then everybody will just smile. But it's an exhortation from God himself. Realize that we are to be obedient in not grumbling and not complaining. It's not an issue of do we want to or not want to. It's an issue of obedience or not obeying. It's the way that we show the culture we are the children of light. It's not only corporately as a church that we should be doing this, but individually in our lives. Think about the people who you transact business with during the week. Do some of your people who you do business with, when you walk in the door, do they go, oh, no. It's him. Or it's her. Or when you walk in the door, they go, oh, thank you, Lord, it's him. It's her. I'll get a blessing. I'll get encouragement. I'll get patience. I'll get kindness. I'll get love. You see, it's the way we express the character of Jesus to our culture. And then finally this morning, obedience and responsiveness, obedience in the struggle, but also obedience in the sacrifice, living in the reality of that day. Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud of you. The day of Christ. What does Paul mean? It was common understanding and still is of the return of our Lord in a physical manifestation. Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back in a full display of his royalty and his majesty and in his glory. And you and I will fall on our knees before him and proclaim him to be Lord of all lords. Paul's speaking about that day. You see, the paradigm in which Paul lives and the paradigm in which Paul gives these instructions to you and I is the paradigm of knowing that day is coming that that day is rapidly approaching. And in that day, we will stand before Christ. 
And the most desirous words that each one of us would want to hear is not, you are a great employee. You are an awesome engineer. You are the best doggone provider there ever was on the earth. Your bank account's really fat. That's not what you're going to want to hear. What you're going to want to hear is the same thing I'm going to want to hear and every Christ follower wants to hear. Well done. Good and faithful slash obedient servant. Enter into the joy of your Father. The joy of manifesting a life that sought to follow Christ and obey Him and His commands. Paul says, in that day, there can be no higher joy, there can be no better reality than hearing, well done. You and I must live in the reality that there is a day coming when we will stand before Christ Himself. And we will either fall on the grace and the mercy of Christ and say, Jesus, I delighted in all that You have done for me. Or we will stand on the precarious precarious ground of duty that says, Christ, look at what I did for You. The only way that you will hear well done, good and faithful servant is when you and I stand before the throne and say, Christ, I was so overwhelmed with what you did for me that I couldn't help but manifest it to those around me. I wanted them to see you in me. I wanted them to see your wash basin. I wanted them to see your wash rag. I wanted them to see your encouragements, your mercy. I wanted them to see your kindness. I wanted them to see the way that you were humble. I wanted them to see the way you served. I wanted them to see, Lord Jesus, your love. I wanted them to see, Lord Jesus, your willingness to do the hard things. I wanted them to see you, Jesus. You and I must live with that priority above all other priorities in our life. I want them to know you, Jesus, and me. That is our obedience and the sacrifice. That is the sacrifice that God is looking for from his people. Humble hearts. Hearts of humility. Hearts of unity. Hearts of love. What are our next steps? Well, the first thing that I would suggest is exchange complaining and contentiousness. If that's a word. I made it up. It has a hyphen. Exchange those things for rejoicing and thanksgiving. Because it's through rejoicing and thanksgiving that you advance the gospel. Are you in a hard place Thank God for the hard place. Begin to thank Him for it. 
Are you in a confusing place? Begin to thank God for the confusion. Knowing that He will bring order. He's giving you an opportunity to trust Him. He's giving you and I an opportunity to believe. He's setting out the table of blessing before us. And saying, don't complain. Don't grumble. Don't be contentious. Be in full expectation of the goodness that I'm about to bestow upon you. Secondly, have a heart checkup. Go see your spiritual cardiologist, Jesus. Have a heart check. Do you find your heart more skeptical and bitter and judgmental and angry? Then it's time to repent. Let me give you three ways to do that. Repent, remember, and resolve. Repent from living in that kind of heart and torn towards a heart that is loving and kind and gentle, peaceable, hospitable. Move towards that. That's what repentance means. To turn from where you are, turn and move towards something else. And then remember. Remember what Christ is doing to you and for you. And as you remember that, it makes it easier to live in repentance. And then resolve. Resolve to know nothing but Jesus and Him crucified for you. Repent, remember, and resolve that your heart is new in Christ. And then finally, take on a new worldview. Determine that you're going to take on a new worldview. That you're going to be a person who lives in the light of that day. Not the end of the month. Not the end of the work day. But you're going to live in the light of that day of the returning Lord. Striving to manifest His fruit in your life. Until the words of well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Father. Bear the marks of obedience with love and joy and expectation. Your King loves you. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we come to you now before your table, breaking the bread of life, drinking.